You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about back row. Here's how to order. Greetings, listeners. It's Dan talking to you about Patreon. That's right. We have a Patreon here at back row. We are running on donations from listeners just like yourself. We have a goal right now of $150 a month. We have recently hit our goal of being able to keep the lights on. So thank you. And if you go sign up for a dollar, for $3, for $5, you're going to get a number of different perks. They can go from early episodes to bonus episodes to a end of the year swag bag. You're not going to want to miss out on this. So go to patreon.com slash back row cineblog or back row.com and scroll to the bottom of the page and click on Patreon. Thank you in advance and enjoy the episode. Hello. This is Notes from the Back Row, a podcast like no other, different themes, rotating hosts, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the mind. This episode sponsored by Patreon's Alyssa Lahan, Jane Landis, Bob Ipcar, and Adam Eisentraub. Hi, and welcome to Notes from the Back Row podcast. I am Jenna, and before I reveal what fun we have in store for you today, I just wanted to direct your attention over to our lovely website, back-row.com, where you will find, among a myriad of other things, everybody's top 10 list for 2019. The vast majority of what you're going to find there is pretty much new-to-me movies, <laughs> um, but at least I focused and Veronica focused a little bit on, on 2019 uh, releases, so you're, you'll have your pick for whatever you want. You want to know about how we felt about Parasite? Go on back-row.com. You want to know how we felt about found footage and Psycho Pike? Back-row.com. But anyhow, for this episode, we have a very special guest on the podcast. Oh, uh, one, one small thing. Uh, when you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? <laughs> I was actually, I was going to introduce you as a cousin of Pluto Nash, but... Um... Oh, oh, great. I'm... <laughs> I don't know whether to be flattered or insulted. <laughs> Here he is. This is Ben Nash, a.k.a. Joker. Um, and hopefully at the end of this podcast, he will not shoot me in the face. Spoiler. But um, here he is. Ben, tell us who you are. Um, I'm a postgraduate student from the University of Southampton, um, all the way in jolly old England, uh, which is right now not particularly jolly. Um, but we're dreadfully polite and we maintain the stiff upper lip. So, you know, uh, we <laughs> soldier on. Uh, um, I'm a writer here and there. I've written a couple of articles for Mubi. Um, I'm in the middle of... Um, doing a PhD application, and um, I am a self-proclaimed Jerry Lewis expert. Which is exactly why I brought him on the show. <laughs> because if you've listened to previous episodes of Notes from the Back Row, or if you've stalked me on Letterboxd, uh, you will know that I went through uh, about a year ago, and you know, honestly for about two solid years, I obsessively watched every single Martin and Lewis uh movie i've read about six or seven books about the two of them like standalone biographies to you know biographies about them working together i've listened to over 50 episodes of the radio show and i've gotten through at least most of dean martin's movies jerry lewis i actually i, I stopped a little bit but we're getting back into it so oh, well, this is this is why i'm here i'm here to correct you <laughs> 
Absolutely. So, you know, the second that Ben said that he was interested in talking about Jerry Lewis, I was like, hell yes. Nobody, everyone at this point is just telling me to please shut up about Jerry Lewis. So. No, we are not going <laughs> to shut up about Jerry Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who wants to talk about him is a, is a good guy in my book. So, Ben, why Jerry Lewis? <sighs> Jerry, Jerry Lewis is... Is, biz- is just this bizarre entity in comedy. I-, I have absolutely no clue why he was as popular as he was, and it just... His, in- his entire career and the entire trajectory of his career is just this this incredibly abstract entity within this otherwise incredibly formulaic landscape of American comedy. I I've, I've, um, I I definitely think that he's one of the great comics, um, and I would compare him to well, not not compare him, but I would put him on par with the likes of people like Charlie Chaplin and um, and Buster Keaton. But he is absolutely nothing like them. There has never been anything like Jerry Lewis, and I'd wager there never will be anything like Jerry Lewis. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I can certainly imagine people that have the similar physical skill or good, good comedic timing or are multi-talented. Um, because, you know, Jerry Lewis, as as we know, it was um, not just a crazy freak, but also someone who, you know, wrote, direct, starred, edited, did absolutely everything, built the sets, art directed. He was completely in there, and in part because he had the money, he was so popular that he oh, yeah. could just start to make his own movies, which which when he did were absolutely, you know, under under Tashlin, uh, who sort of mentored him out of the Martin and Lewis um, stuff and towards this more cartoony uh, look and feel, and Jerry latched onto that and then went crazy with it and, and started his own thing. But yeah, I mean, like beyond all of that, which which arguably there have been... <laughs> others who who are multi-talented but i just can't imagine that we would give someone like this the time of day anymore well going back to what you said uh briefly about um about jerry's as a sort of an auteur this is another one of the reasons why um i think he's he's worth considering within like the pantheon of great comedy filmmakers because he was someone like chaplin who had complete control over like the cinematic text for lack of a better phrase for a very to use a very pretentious film film school film school phrase um (laughs) which is which is indeed why the kaye critics latched onto him like they did and it's why people like jean-luc godard and jacques rivette were just singing his praises and all day every day Right. Well, I mean, and I feel like maybe you as as uh, being from the UK, which is close enough to Europe, <laughs> says the American. Well, I mean, we we are still at the time of at the time of recording, we are still in the European Union. So I'm going to take go. this as an opportunity to say, yeah, he's. <laughs> I'm. Well, I'm, you guys I'm, like Jerry Lewis. I mean, in America, I feel if you you can't find anyone under seventy who um, gives a shit about him. Well, you can for sure. There are some really there are some very devoted fans of his still. Which, and I mean, I guess at this point, I'm one. But um, <laughs> I feel like uh, you really the people that are going to sing his praises are are over seventy, and even then, I mean, I don't uh, know personally know anyone that who is over seventy who. Uh, actually is excited to talk to me about any of this. <laughs> so. oh, um, to be to be perf- to be perfectly honest to be perfectly honest I don't think there are many people in the UK either. I we we are part of a very small group of people who are valiantly struggling for rec- for the recognition of Jerry Lewis in the modern age. <laughs> 
So, I mean, if you guys learn anything from this podcast, uh, it's it's that we want you to to reconsider Jerry Lewis as as at least like a fascinating, insane blip of of human being. Like, I, I mean, like you don't have to come away and think like, ah, oh, what a skilled auteur. But you know, you can't ignore this guy. I'm sorry. Like, and for all of the crappy things he's ever said, uh, and all the 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 sort of like, I mean, if you go. Google Jerry Lewis problematic. I'm sure you'll find about five thousand hits on Google. But to be perfectly honest, I think that was all part of his curmudgeonly old man persona. <laughs> I, I think every, I think pretty much everything that Jerry Lewis did past the age of maybe seventy has to be taken with a, a pretty considerable dose of salt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he definitely leaned into it towards the end. I, it was a weird mix, I think, of someone who had gotten famous for being, um, as he called himself, a child star. He wasn't really a child. I mean, as a teenager but you know he he be, grew up with with show business and and he was praised and praised for being a crazy guy and then once he hit like 30 everyone was like it's not cute anymore <laughs> and, despite that uh, he's still he's still maintaining this incredibly childlike persona i mean the first right. thing that people think of with jerry lewis is their way hey, yeah, uh, voice that um <laughs> I, I i will not i will not attempt for fear of embarrassing myself <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good you know, he, he basically then was, was forced to try and do something else, which, he, of course, he didn't. He spent ten another decade trying to continue with it and got to, to very mixed reviews. And then I think once he finally was the, to, way too old for any, to fool anyone, you know, he just he kind of lost himself a little bit. And you definitely see that happening all throughout the 60s, which is when he was right in his making, what, like three movies a year, basically, up until the end. This is, I think, like the, I think, sort of that that question of relevance was one of the catalysts for one of the more interesting aspects of um, Jerry's solo career as director. Um, and I think, I, I think, there's an argument to be made for Jerry Lewis. Um, Jerry Lewis is an avant-garde filmmaker based on a couple of based on a couple of these things. So I, yeah. I think, because uh, I mean, um, like Jerry, Jerry has always been interested in um, in sort of the roles that we play within society he's always been fascinated with the idea of like performance and um structure and the and the roles that people fill within society which is why jobs are such a big part of his um a big part of his cinema and his characters are always taking on multiple jobs and switching between roles and so we and yeah and, th and through and through this i think there's an argument to be made that uh jerry lewis is again um again in many ways similar to chaplin i think while chaplin presents us with more of like a grim reflection of our own society he represents this grotesque tramp um who a, a grotesque stereotype that would have been familiar to so many people through sort of the amplification of like the um the big shoes and the waistcoat and and because of that, people would immediately identify him. They wouldn't be able to, like, turn their eyes away from him. Whereas, on the other hand, although Jerry is doing something... Yeah, J Jerry is Jerry is doing exactly the same thing that Ch uh, that Chaplin is doing, but he isn't, he isn't a reflection of society. He's a complete aberration. He's a total misfit who refuses to resolve himself within, like, the milieu of society. And... And indeed, as the films progressed and as he got more assured as a creator, he refused to resolve himself within the structure of his own films. 
<laughs> like if that doesn't make you want to at least watch one Jerry Lewis movie, like I'm sorry, I don't know what will. Like I agree with you completely. It, it, he's just it, it's so uniquely him and about him and for him. <laughs> and yet there is something that's like strangely I don't know. I mean like he, the guy the guy's talented. Like that's the one thing. I mean as as maybe as annoying as he can be, um you can't deny his uh, comedic timing when he when he lands it. <laughs> I think there is also I think we do also have to point out that a lot of Jerry Lewis's films are about dismantling that comedic timing. When people think a lot of people have described Jerry Lewis as like the king of comedy and the ultimate clown, and I think they get this idea of Jerry Lewis as the the of the sort of this ver this sort of perfect clown from again his early collaborations with Frank Tashlin and the stuff he did with Dean Martin. But again, returning to, returning to what I said, this this this, obse this obsession with structure it goes both ways, and I think there's almost an argument to be made that Jerry Lewis is like a structural filmmaker. Going back to what I said when I described him as this sort of surreal, almost avant-garde figure, Lewis sort of achieves like an inverse of Hollis Frampton and Michael Snow's cinema. Now this is going very niche getting into very niche cinema so the structural the structural filmmakers believed in emphasizing emphasizing the structure of the film and actually presenting that as the central feature of the film over and above the things that were contained within that structure so we consider early experimental films like the flicker uh which are just a which is just a a, a flashing black and white screen which is all about the structure, it's about the individual frames and the breakdown of those frames. And then going on to something a bit more advanced like Hollis Frampton and Michael Snow, they both um, they both believed in uh, constructing films in terms of like mathematical sets and things like that. And okay, this, and yeah, anyone who's seen a Jerry Lewis film is gonna think this sounds completely crazy, but I think that there is a case to be made that Jerry achieves, like he achieves the same result through an inverse of that cinema. Because the structure right. is still essential to Jerry Lewis's films, but he makes the audience aware of the artifice of the film, much in the same way that the structural filmmakers do, through like an absence or a breakdown of structure. Like the structure is it's essential, but it becomes corrupted. And I think this is especially apparent in The Ladies Man, which has that very famous dollhouse set, which this open plan dollhouse set, and Jerry will frequently pan out to show all of the rooms open and sectioned, so he's still revealing right. the structure, but he exists externally to that structure through the camera and through many of the gags, which exist as these sort of individual, often completely unconnected batshit vignettes, which take the quote-unquote narrative in a series of incredibly wild and bizarre directions that are completely and utterly incongruous and abrupt in these deeply weird ways. And... And a lot of the jokes don't land, to return to my original point I was making however long ago. A lot of these jokes don't land, but that's part of the point, because Jerry is completely subverting and uh, disrupting his own performative persona and the own image he, they ha that people had of him as this sort of straight funny man who got up onto the stage and told jokes with Dean Martin. It is. It's really interesting, because actually when you're watching Jerry Lewis throughout his career that's always been his thing and it kind of it, it's you you start to realize that there's it, it's the typical story of anyone who gets 
really famous is that there is the marketing version of them. There's like the PR image. He's the crazy guy, you know, like that's all you hear. And then you actually watch you. If you actually go back and spend hours of your life watching, um, you know, every episode of the Martin and Lewis show, you will quickly find out that there is actually so much that is just so strange about it. And one of the things that Jerry would do constantly w within that, and that's why they became so famous, their their show is essentially improv, uh, you know, just two guys playing off of each other and just subverting expectations of what it meant for uh, a, to be a buddy comedy. Um, you know, in the, in the most glorious um, moments of Martin and Lewis for me is when they do things like exposing the set. I mean, Jerry, if you watch the Martin and Lewis show, he's constantly, and this is cheesy show. It's like sketch, like sketch show. Uh, most of the, the sketches are, you know, Dean is, uh, you know, has a fancy house and Jerry is the, you know, the waiter and no, oh, what's going to happen when Jerry carries the turkey? Oh no. You know, it's like that kind of like really cheesy 1940s comedy <laughs> in the fifties, but um, the, the thing that's so wonderful is that then like you get Jerry, uh, messing up his lines and acknowledging it and you get Jerry, um, peeking, like acknowledging that this is a really fake plastic Turkey and you have him peeking under sets. You have him literally talking to cameramen. You have him pointing out how many cameras are in the room. You have him walking in such a way that he, that you can now see all the cameras around him. It's, it, it's like showing people how everything was done and how everything was made, um, and, and it's this satire, it's like this ridiculous meta satire on himself. And then, as you said, uh, once he then, you know, busted out on his own, he only took that further and further and further and got just more and more meta to the point, I think people no longer realized. <laughs> and perhaps I, I do think he lost himself in his own image for sure. I think that there's a degree of that. I don't think that he was so far brilliant and maybe you do, but I don't think he got so far brilliant that... Uh, you know, it was like he was speaking on another plane that we just don't understand, man. But like, I think he, he... was very definitely speaking on this plane because I, I, I because I mean, <laughs> uh, try, 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 try as I might to kind of lift Jerry to this sort of image of like sort of Chaplin esque brilliance and say, oh no, no, he he was he was as good as Chaplin, and oh yeah, Godard was absolutely right. He was the true political filmmaker of his generation. I think that we we can't escape the fact that his films are just massive cults of personality and it is always jerry at the center of them but i think also because because of that um rather than in spite of that but because of that they have this very interesting abstract quality because as because as you say there's this sort of marketing image of jerry lewis and there's all of the there's all of the sort of the shtick and all of the kind of the quirks and the skits that people knew him for um, the most notable um, being, for the sake of this conversation, the yellow face that he used to do at the very, very beginning of his career. Right, but for decades. As, as, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 well, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> but, um, like, to towards towards the end of his career, you start to get the sense, um, you start to get the sense that through this sort of, dis this, this sort of heavy dismantling and abstraction of all these sort of skits and quirks that he's taken on a, a, a very, a deeply dark and self-critical tone i mean jerry tries the yellow face in hardly working one of the two films he did at the 80s sorry in the 80s at the very end of his directing career where he's working at a hibachi restaurant and there he is doing the sort of the mickey rooney breakfast at tiffany's thing with the big teeth and the screwed up eyes chopping up onions and the 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 patrons of this restaurant 
actually advance on him en masse and just start throttling him on the fl- on the floor and you start to realize that he that he w- that he himself began to reject this kind of um this kind of shtick that he had cultivated throughout his career and really and really sort of reject and really rejected his his sense of self that's interesting i mean like i think there's a i mean there's obviously there's a great argument to be made for who cares he still did it <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean d- like <laughs> at the same time i mean i don't know it is interesting i mean jerry definitely internalized everything that everyone told him all the time I, reading all of the biographies about him he just seems like a sponge for attention and then also for taking in what is given to him. So if somebody, if he did like a great show and one person was like, you suck, then he would be like, why am I, why am I so terrible? He had this almost like bipolar reaction to it. So then for him later in life, when, when people were telling him, I think more loudly that they did not like him anymore. uh, It doesn't surprise me that I, I think I could give you that, that like there is, it is most likely that he, was basically trying to satirize himself while doing this. This culminated in Cracking Up, where he actually, at the beginning of the film, tries to kill himself on multiple occasions. And um, and I think at this... and uh, Indeed, this is actually something that he had spoken about a number of times in um, various interviews and things like that, that he himself had struggled with sort of depression and suicide and things like that. And to see him, and to see him present that in character is, I think... A wonderful moment well maybe not a wonderful moment but a, a, a really sort of um a really sort of clear moment of sort of self-realization where he where he kind of aligns he where he aligns the jet the 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 jerry that exists within the films and jerry the man who actually made the films and and had to sort and had to sort of deal with the shifting landscape of culture and yeah, and, and and again, this and again, this was something that he had been carrying with him since like his his early days, where he started to mess with the structure and of his films and sort of and amplify the kind of the artifice of the scenes. And now, at the very end, we have an indistinguishable Jerry the man, Jerry the performer, who is who realizes that who realizes that one of them is going to have to die. Is it, is it is it is it going to be is it going to be Jerry's character or is it going to be Jerry himself is he going to go down with the burning ship Well so I so for the structure of this episode I I told you to pick two movies that um you wanted to talk about about Jerry Lewis that are maybe some lesser known films or things that you think were notable <laughs> for whatever reason so that's what we're going to we're definitely going to um you get get into that right now, but I also wanted to to ask what what's your favorite Jerry Lewis movie? You said it was The Ladies Man, right? It's either The Ladies Man or Cracking Up, and these are actually going to be the two films that I'm going to talk about in more detail. We've been touching on them and sort of picking them apart bit by bit, but um, well, have at it. Let's go. Let's just yeah. get right into it. This um, I think they're the two films which just which epitomize Jerry Lewis as as a comedian and um, as a, a Jerry Lewis is a comedian. Jerry Lewis is a director. Jerry Lewis is a person, and as a result, they're 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 the ones that I find the most interesting. Um, I the late the ladies man the ladies man is the weird the weird thing is that while they're so while they're incredibly similar in many ways and they do and they and obviously well being two films made by jerry um they are they're sort of about they're not about the same things but they're they're structured around the same ideas and they are and they have the same sort of aesthetic and formal structures 
but at the same time, they couldn't be more different. Uh, the Ladies' Man is... It's a work of unbridled creativity and joy and passion for the material. I mean... Yes, Jerry is sending himself up, and he and he's doing and he's doing this sort of thing where, um, as as opposed to the early Tashlin films, where he would get the girl, no questions asked, no questions answered. We have an inverse of this in the Ladies' Man, where he is terrified of young women, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with them because his heart has been broken at the beginning of the film. But again, despite but again, despite this, the 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 self-critical angles and the sort of the self-satire don't they they don't cast a shadow over the film the film as i said is about jerry flexing his creative muscles and uh, and experimenting with the boundaries of film in a in a very joyful sort of way he goes from like he goes from sort of a weird um he goes from a weird theater number into this bizarre musical number with this woman clad entirely in black in this open plan yeah, in this in this in this open plan in this open plan apartment room with live orchestra playing, and there is something very there is something incredibly joyful about that and um and and virtuosic. But then on the flip side, you have cracking up, which although it adheres to the same kind of absence of narrative and the same kind of narrative experimentation, it's a it's a really dark and twisted and cynical film made by someone who who is really questioning himself and. And 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 is and and is uncertain of himself at every turn, and and really doesn't know if there is a future for him. Which indeed there wasn't, because I mean, after cracking up, um, after cracking up, he retired. They uh, Warner Brothers didn't give the film like um, any kind of um, any kind of widespread release. They he he they just plonked it onto TV one day, and and it was it was at that point that Jerry said, "I'm going to step away from directing. I I can't do this anymore." Well, he also had a heart attack during the editing of. <laughs> yes. So I think that that might have been part of it, yeah. but um... although it was it, no, it was it was it was any number of things. The other thing to consider is the is the the day the clown cried, which um, I mean, Jerry had had always enjoyed a lot of commercial success, maybe not critical success. All of his films were reviewed pretty uniformly, but he had enjoyed a great deal of commercial success until he did the day the clown cried, where he tried to right. again like separate himself from. He he tried to do a, like a complete separation from this. Um... Well, we also have to say that this is the movie in which Jerry Lewis was playing a clown in the Holocaust who was yep. trying to make kids laugh so that they could then walk into the gas chamber to get it was, gas. Yeah, he was he was a Pied Piper. <laughs> he was a Pied Piper for the children of Auschwitz, and justifiably so. After Jerry had finished this project, he he's he he said, "No, I'm I'm not letting anyone see this film. I I I can't do this." and until until his until his death until his death in in interviews whenever people asked him are we ever going to see the day the clown cried he would just resolutely say no it's not getting released it has a hold on it too i think that it there there's um oh shoot i should have looked it up but i it was something like 40 years after his death like anything that they have can be released <laughs> yes but there's actually a question of as to if there is even a finished film still left but Jerry was meticulous with um, everything he's ever anytime he was ever on a show anytime he uh, ever wrote took a photo did any sort of even um, PR kind of appearances on something commercial kind of stuff he kept it he actually had an amazing archive which is now uh, at the Smithsonian uh, in in Virginia and so I mean that's sort of wonderful because actually there are television shows that no longer exist 
and that Jerry has reels of because he was the guest on them. So it's it's actually pretty fantastic. Um, but then it's also this question of like, apparently there isn't a finished film for this and not even that it's like, just like reels of film. It's like surprisingly not much. And so there's a question of, but they're also still going through everything. So who knows? There are but... a number of people who have apparently seen it. I can't remember who it was. Right. Um, it was, um, I think Jerry Seinfeld has seen a, um, a, a print of it or something like that. And cause, um, cause he and Jerry Seinfeld were, um, were quite close friends. One of Jerry's last appearances was on uh, comedians and comedians in cars getting coffee, um, and they and they and they're shown to be very close together, and they clearly enjoy each other's company. So I, I think, yeah, I, I I can't remember if it's true. Someone will hopefully, someone will hopefully be able to tell me who it was. And um, yeah, Harry Shearer claims he saw yes, it. But yeah, like... no, no, it was it was Harry Shearer as well. There there have been a couple of people who claim to have seen it, and. But their stories change. Like you're not. I'm like I'm yeah. not totally convinced that they have, or or they might have seen. I think that you can even go on YouTube and watch a, a, a short clip of it. So yeah, I, I don't uh, know. It, there's there's a there's under forty minutes of it in in bits and pieces, and um I'm, at, at any at any rate, the script is available online, and right people could people can read it if they so desire. I myself am going nowhere near that because I mean I'm I, although I'm slightly <laughs> although I'm slightly curious I I also have a very ambivalent a, a very ambivalent view of people who try to make a film like the day the clown cried about something as atrocious as the Holocaust and I respect Jerry Lewis and I respect his opinion enough to stay clear of something that he says he's ashamed of that he doesn't want people to see so yeah I'm I'm not I'm not going to touch that with a barge pole. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i mean I, I of all the things in the world to watch or read i feel like there's other things i can yeah <laughs> like my like towards. indeed the other forms he did after the day the clown cried which were cracking up and hardly working which <laughs> we should get back to talking because god the day the clown cried is just making me depressed <laughs> well so so cracking up which is also aka uh smorgasbord right smorgasbord yep Came out in 1983. I just want to tell you guys, so by 1983, Jerry Lewis is like, you know, no one cares about Jerry Lewis except for us looking Goddard. back at him in the Goddard. past. It, it's just Goddard and then yeah, no one and else. Goddard. And Goddard loves Jerry Lewis so much he makes Keep Your Right Up as a tribute to Jerry Lewis. And it's Goddard. <laughs> it's it's this, this is something I've just got to briefly, briefly bring up. I, um, of all, um, one of my, one of my favorite things about, um, about the Jerry, about Jerry Lewis fandom is the weird and wonderful tributes that a lot of filmmakers, especially members of the French New Wave, did to him throughout his career. Like there's 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 echoes there's echoes of Jerry Lewis throughout like Jacques Rivette's career, where you have these incredibly bizarre, peculiar performers. People like uh, Jean-Pierre Léo in um, in uh, Outdoor uh, Nelly Matangare and and indeed um, Godard playing a sort of a, a French Jerry Lewis character in Keep Your Right Up and seeing and seeing all these and seeing all these kind of echoes of Lewis and recognizing all these little points, it's it's it it, it makes it it makes it all worthwhile. It makes it makes all of <laughs> it, yeah it it, ratif it ratifies Jerry. It 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 brings him in. It bring it should by it should rightly bring him into like kind of mainstream critical discussions because like it or lump it he was like a formative influence for loads of members of the french new wave oh big time yeah and i mean he, he was formative for i mean for comedy i mean again like i'm not when i say that jerry lewis and, and dean martin especially when the two of them were together they were like number one 
Yeah. <laughs> they were the number one in comedy for like the and 1940s. They were, they, were huge, they were huge in Vegas. And I mean, Jerry, towards towards the end of his life, he was still working in Vegas and he still had a spot oh, sure. on like the Las Vegas Strip where like people like sellout crowds would come and see him. But at their height, even, I mean, like, they essentially were Beatlemania before the Beatles were a thing. They were, they were yep. like, Elvis before Elvis was a thing. If you look up footage of them on YouTube of, of, like, them literally, like, waving out of a window in Times Square with a sea of people just waiting for them. It was, like, sold-out show after sold-out show. And, and for a solid, I mean, 10 years, by the end of that 10-year time after they had broken up, uh, it definitely was getting, you know, people were kind of getting over it. But I mean, this was like they were they were number one. But I mean, by 1983, like just for comparison, um, you know, movies that came out in 1983, like Return of the Jedi, <laughs> uh, Terms of Endearment. These are the, the top 10 movies of 1983. Flashdance, Trading Places, War Games, Octopussy, Sudden Impact, Staying Alive, Mr. Mom, Risky Business. And, you know, I'm trying to think of other comedies here, like uh, Christmas Story, Vacation. And, in, and indeed, we, and indeed we'd had, like, we'd had people like John Hughes and, and, um, right. and sort of others of that, and others of that ilk who had tried to do, who had tried to make comedy, who tried to make comedy more serious and tried to sort of make it dignified. And, I mean, the, the popularity of John Hughes and, like, the pervasiveness of John Hughes in, like, culture even to even today john hughes is still a massive name more so than than more so than jerry lewis was in between the time his career started in like 1983 john um so yeah we've we've had we've had how, how many well yeah we've 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 had like 30 we've had 30 years of john hughes and he's still talked about in film schools i i would say regrettably and people are still <laughs> people people are still people are still desperate to cite him as like a major influence and um and I think a lot you. of that is to do, a, a, a lot of that is to do with the fact that, as I said, John Hughes tried to make it dignified and he tried to make it serious, whereas Jerry presents us with something which is completely out there and abstract and weird and un unquantifiable. And this in this in turn this in turn goes back to sort of the ideas of like pathos and um, and timing and things like that, which are all present in. In in like John Hughes films and films like that, which are not in Jerry's films, and many people didn't really like consider the value that that had. They just saw it as Jerry flubbing a punchline. Right. I mean, and, and, I and think... then for him to have come out with with this cracking up movie, a smorgasbord, where the the first ten minutes, besides an initial like almost Harold and Maude like scene of him trying to kill himself and failing in the most slapstick possible way. Uh, and then follows that up with about a t like five minutes of him just trying to walk across a very shiny floor and then slipping and falling on his ass every five seconds to it's very it's honestly made me laugh out loud way more than oh I it's 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 great it's it's it is one of by far and away one of the best things that has ever come out of comedy period it, I, it I is honestly it was glorious but then like to compare that to like as you're saying to john hughes <laughs> it's like the most opposite like the the, the absolute worst uh you know timing for for anything like this this was so outdated this this kind of humor was so you know uh, superficially was just like 20 years 30 years too late so cracking up i think you as you mentioned it had been it it came out uh it got funding i think from some uh new producers and then it came out and um they immediately sent it to to tv death 
<laughs> yeah. Because they were like, absolutely no way. There's no way that we're going to release this. Because the movie itself is essentially, I mean, honestly, to watch it now, it really doesn't seem, it seems out of place as, in as far as what was popular in comedy, but it doesn't seem that out of place for 1983 even. I mean, it felt very like, it's it's a sketches. It's a series of sort of not barely connected sketches about this guy, Warren Nefron, who's, you know, obviously Jerry Lewis. And uh, he's like a, you know, he's a klutz and, and um, his whole life is miserable and his whole family is miserable. And so he's at the psychiatrist who has that very shiny office with very slick patent leather, everything that he can't seem to sit on. And, um, you know, he's just going, he's sort of, sort of telling the story of his family and himself. But like, honestly, it's almost just like 10 to five minute sketches that Jerry couldn't put anywhere <laughs> and so we had to put it all in one movie and in, in that way it kind of reminds me of like monty python and you know it's it's they're weird yes. it's surreal it's um you know it's honestly pretty enjoyable but it's, it has no narrative really I mean, i'm committing like... an act of high treason by saying this but i think that jerry lewis is infinitely funnier and more creative than monty python ever was i mean the thing is that the thing <laughs> the thing is that i i feel like the bad monty python sketches the ones which go on for too long that people look back on and like oh god the self-defense against fruit sketch oh god i i i that that went on way too long that's dated horribly i think that's, no, that's what great. people think of when they think Jerry Lewis. Whereas right. Jerry Lewis, Jer it, it, like, like if Jerry Lewis had done the self-defense against fruit sketch, by the by the end, by the end, I think he by the end, I think he would have been just sort of throwing the fruit around or something like that, and pausing and slurring and actually acknowledging that the joke went on too long and didn't work. Um, and this is, and this would have been especially apparent in Cracking Up, which um, I, which as I as I've said a couple of times is. Def very definitely his most self-critical work and it forms a very interesting diptych in his career with Hardly Working which was released just two years earlier and as I said I've kind of included in the included them in the same bracket um, throughout this discussion because they because as I say they both represent J Jerry Lewis at the end of his tether and um like hardly hardly working admittedly cracking up is much more extreme because it begins with him killing himself but hardly working has something has hardly working also has a very direct message to the audience where jerry begins in oft oft uh, jerry begins in this circus tent and he does his performance and then um and then immediately afterwards he's in the dressing room and um He's in the dressing room, and the um, and the ringmaster and the um comes comes in and announces that the circus won't be continuing, and we see Jerry Lewis in a mirror taking his clown makeup off, and well, on top of that being, I would say, quite an overt reference to the day the clown cried and like the <laughs> the shitstorm that that film presumably is. It's it, it it is it represents this kind of same it represents the same idea of retiring the persona, hanging up the wig, and um, putting away the like the, the pancake face paint and things like that, and um and then and and then and then in hard and then in hardly working we see Jerry trying to integrate into society, effectively like abandoning his shtick or trying to integrate his shtick into the through the machinations of, of the modern world i use machinations deliberately because i think that jerry has quite a pessimistic attitude about like modern life and the way in which people are sort of commodified and treated as like functions and means to an end which you see especially in the jobs that he tries to get and um 
And eventually he can't take it and he reasserts his subjectivity by donning the clown makeup back on and doing his job as a postman as a clown. And the film has something of a happy ending because he goes off to um, to clown college to try and resume his clowning career and 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 be somebody, be the person he wants to be in spite of like the restrictions of society. And then all of a sudden, with cracking up, if you watch them back to back and sort of consider them as like a continuation of the same narrative, we realise that that dream has yet again failed and Jerry is now at an even lower point than he was at the beginning of Hardly Working, where he's got a rope around his neck and he's trying to hang himself. You know, that's the thing I actually really liked about this is that Jerry Lewis is so prone to self-pity, which it's not to say that he's not allowed, <laughs> um, but I don't, there, there, he gets to so schmaltzy, he gets to this degree of like, woe is me, no one loves the true comedy of a clown anymore, and, and it, uh, you know, it's, he is, he's acknowledging it, he confronts it, and there is a lot of self-awareness there, but he always kind of falls back into that. I just overly like self-pity kind of, I don't know. I just, for me, that's where he loses me. But for Smorgasbord and, and Cracking Up, I keep saying the same thing. I'm looking at the poster of it and, and it's, there's a reason they, I guess there's two titles for it. I, they changed I think, it. I, I, th I think they changed it because Smorgasbord was going to be difficult for people to pronounce. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, like the, the thing I really liked about this movie though was that he, um, he just cut all of that crap out, which... <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there's... Well, the self, the self-pity becomes part of the joke. Right. I think... and, and it's a little, it's way more self-aware. It's way less sappy. There were no like, um, you know, God bless us, everyone kind of moments in, in this movie, which he's definitely prone to. And I also he's, feel like he he's finally perfected... Prone to it more in his early career, yeah. Yeah, he finally perfected that, um, like, by, by cutting things at five minutes. <laughs> You yes. know, like there's nothing in this that goes on for too long. There's jokes that don't land so well, but nothing. It's actually the 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 editing in this is amazing. <laughs> like it took him till 1983. It's definitely his. It's definitely his most. I mean, it's a structuralist film, but of his like deconstructivist films, it's um, it's certainly the most tightly paced, and it's um, and as and as and as you said, he is very judicial and abrupt with the cuts, and I think that in turn kind of lends itself to the themes of like fatalism and despair that he's working with throughout the film right because uh, yeah because like it, it, none of none of none of the skits end well they end with him it, i mean it, they end with him in pain i mean like he was he was he was always he was always like the idiot and um, the monkey and the kind of the guy riding around on the floor at the end but it was it was never as direct as it was with these two films so like off the top of my head i'm thinking of his um of his french ancestor who we cut away to i should add that all of the character all of the characters that they cut to are played of course by jerry lewis so we have his french ancestor who he cuts away to who tries to escape prison by putting a dummy in his bed and then running away on and then escaping through the window and running away on horseback and then instead the dummy is the one that um is escapes and so he's left in prison presumably to be executed and then um Another one, we have a group of bank robbers who break out into this bizarre, impromptu dance number, only to be led away by police. And oh, then that one was so Monty Python, the, the bank robbers. Like <laughs> no, they... no, no, Monty Python would never have like this, would never have this 
never had the gall to do something as immediate as that. It would be followed by this sort of endless preamble and it would just ugh, go stale. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very down on Monty Python at the moment, especially <sighs> talking about Jerry Lewis. Well, the, the, the thing about that dummy one, which is, which is honestly like you think it's going to be stupid and it is stupid, but like <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is it's stupid. executed so well that you cannot help but laugh the way that he basically has this dummy sail, literally sail across um, uh, like a mountain to like fall down and then land on this horse's back come perfectly. And then the horse just like kicks off and starts running and there's Jerry cuts back to him crying through the bars of the cell. <laughs> and it was as just like brilliantly done. Like you can't help but laugh at this like really simple dumb joke that was just like done to such a, you know, it's such a detail. And then I also have to say that there was one line that made me laugh that leads up to that where Jerry's telling the psychiatrist, yeah, I had a, you know, relative who, um, you know, escaped prison and the psychiatrist says, oh, uh, and he, did he pull it off? And, and Jerry says, I'm sure he pulled it off. There are no women in prison. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh shit. Like, and then finally Jerry gets to sort of do more of his blue uh, material, which he was famous for on stage, but, uh, you know, obviously couldn't do in Hollywood. And in There's, this movie, there is, a... there is no, all the shackles are off. <laughs> oh Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that was also apparent when it begins with the rope around his neck. It's, as as I as I as I said, it's an incredibly it, it's it really is an assault in in a way that Jerry Lewis's and other way that other Jerry Lewis's films aren't because um, it's again it's not that he pulls his punches, but as I said, it's more it's more his early films are more about experimentation and kind of expanding on like the on on sort of the idea of the performance and the self and. Uh, and like the the mutability of the self within the film and indeed within Jerry Lewis's own career because as I said he would take on all these different roles and he would be despite being Jerry he would be a different person each time and what role would would he have and and like what would he do um but as I but as I said when he goes to like hardly working and cracking up there's something much more uh, much more fatalistic and deterministic about it and and you get and you get the sense that things are like sort of hurtling towards a violent a violent end. Well, I feel like you could go on about that that yogi uh, scene where he plays this like Zen mountain man who decides he's going to go into surgery and he's not going to use anesthetic. He's just going to you know meditate so hard that he yep. won't feel the pain. And of course, the second that the knife goes into his stomach, he just starts screaming. <laughs> <laughs> yep. which you know is was it's it's also it's really satisfying because it doesn't it doesn't last much longer than that like it's just like one joke it gets set up for a bit you know they they hit the beat and then they're done it's like boom. and then all of a sudden done i mean that is very much the way in which the film ends i mean although uh, okay so just 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 to dis just to describe this for a second so eventually out of the blue um his psychiatrist jerry psychiatrist um suddenly says oh hang on that's it this is what we've been missing all along i'm gonna hypnotize you into into becoming a, like a functional member of society and this this hasn't been built up at all and it, it's it, and it, it's it's um it's like a it's like a it comes out comes I just i don't know what else to say it comes right the fuck out of nowhere and all of a sudden when it's done jerry just becomes a normal member of society and he walks off admittedly the psychiatrist does sort of become like a jerry figure the, the jerry doesn't disappear from the film when jerry himself leaves because he sort of continued on in the psychiatrist who who somehow like who somehow becomes who somehow becomes everything that Jerry was and right. and causes and causes a car crash in the middle of the street as Jerry leaves with these two women who he successfully picks up 
But nonetheless, the fact that Jerry has walked off and become like a normal person, I think is deeply symbolic in, in, quite, a, in quite a sad way. Man, I'm, I'm like, I, I watched this and I was like, ha ha, Jolly Fats Weehawken. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're like, is, actually, this is, is symbolic of, <laughs> but I love it. That's the, that's the joy of Jerry Lewis. That's that's the joy of Jerry Lewis that it, it's it, his films really are puzzle boxes and I think that returning to what I said about the importance of structure and the rather far fetched comparison to like people like Frampton and Snow is that Jerry really wants you to engage with the structure of his films and really ma- and really make the audience consider whether they do or not what he's trying to do and how he's trying to say it and how each of the films continues which is why he does these frequent callbacks and which is why when he screws around with these established sets and things like that it's so funny because we we recognize them and we've seen them before and we've seen him work incrementally to this sort of end point uh, this is this is all great <laughs> I'm like, hell yeah, like, this is wonderful. I, I will say that it's making me think of the fact that it, it is true that the more of Jerry Lewis that you watch, the, the funnier he gets, because the more you do understand that he is building towards something, whether or not you actually think it's funny or interesting, like, He's to watch his career. building something by, dis- by destroying it. It's right. like, okay, here's, 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 a, here's, a good, here's a good comparison that will net me a lot of brownie points with the film community. It's like the... <laughs> It's like the uh, here's a very good way of describing Jerry Lewis's films. He's like the uh, the the uh, short silent film of the wall collapsing, only to be built up again as the frame is as as the picture is reversed. So Jerry is Jerry is effectively building to something by destroying everything. I mean, arguably the comedy <laughs> is is typically that. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I have to say that Jolly Fat's Weehawken thing really made me laugh. I think in part because it was this callback to New Jersey. Weehawken, New Jersey is right by Newark, which is where he was born. And if you're from New York City like I am, then you have um, plenty of jokes about New Jersey at the ready. And so I appreciated that immediately. Uh, There was this great, um, basically Jolly Fat's Weehawken is a, a really cheap, crummy airline and all these other airlines, you know, are, you know, hundred dollars. It's like, a, it's like a Mad Max airline. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, are pe- there, are pe- there are people boarding with like hat, with like live grenades and, and belts of ammunition and pistols. Right. They're like the guy at security <laughs> says, wait a minute, you don't have a gun? And he's like, what? No, I, I don't. And the guy's just, start, he cop starts laughing at him. He's like, good luck, buddy. <laughs> And then, and then indeed, he crashes in the Alps, where he meets, um, where he meets the the man who is supposedly going to cure him, who is eventually operated on and tries to do this whole thing with like the removal of the spleen without anaesthetic. Right. Yeah. That's it's this is this movie was honestly I feel like in a way a great. Do you feel like I would say that this was actually a pretty good introduction to Jerry Lewis because it's so fast. Uh, yes, but I also feel like it's richer with more knowledge. It's well, not 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 only not only that, but people might not appreciate like the earlier, more sort of lo- more more kind of meandering narratives um, of his earlier stuff. The dare I say, kind of like the Twin Peaks, the Return, Out One kind of thing that he was cultivating with films like The Ladies' Man and um, and and like the Patsy and um, Who's Minding the Store and things like that. I mean, the ladies' man is just honestly that movie is so worth watching for that set, which Jerry built. Like as you were describing, it's a dollhouse completely, you know, with one wall missing. He wired the damn thing. He wired the whole thing for sound. He wired it for electricity and water. 
It was yep. the most expensive set that was ever built for a comedy, which was at the time it was um, $350,000, which if you put into the um, calculator, the inflation calculator is over $3 million in current dollars. <laughs> so, I mean, absolutely insane. I mean, like ridiculous. The, the set's amazing. It, it is really, I mean, watch that movie for that alone, if nothing else. But I agree with you that there's so much more going on in that about also breaking the fourth wall that but i have to say there, there's parts of that movie though that i just find kind of i don't know it's like there, there's all this sort of you know chasing women kind of jokes which even if it's self-aware at the end of the day you're still watching it happen and it gets kind of boring for me but i, I that is a good movie like i would recommend watching that movie it's it's it is it is undoubtedly one of the essential films regardless of how you feel about lewis whether he's for you or not i think um I've um the last time I taught a class to um a group of a group of kids who were sort of starting out as um kind of film students it was my film I showed them as like how you do a comedy film and the and the work and the and I also felt like the workings of the sets and things like that it it was it just felt like a very kind of essential piece of a very essential piece of cinema regardless of whether or not you buy into any uh, all the kind of the sort of the profound bullshit that I've been spouting for like the past hour or however long <laughs> it is it is it is it is a it is a film that i feel like you have to watch if you value comedy or films or anything like that and yet the second film that you chose for us <laughs> for jerry lewis to watch was this nutty professor except oh, it was yeah. the 2008 version of the nutty the professor the officials the official sequel it was the official sequel um f- 40 40 something years in the making the animated sequel to the nutty professor starring jerry lewis right this is not eddie murphy this is also it's nope. it's cgi animated it's it, it is something <laughs> and i'm sure you've never heard of it because i never heard of it nope no i i sent it i sent it to jenna one day and i said hey jenna you like jerry lewis movies do you want to watch this movie that no one has heard of and <laughs> jenna said oh great watch it with me and i oh god and uh, a, a beautiful, beautiful friendship blossomed from this, from <laughs> this right. shared gem of the shared God. misery. Yeah. Well, yep. so why did you choose this? So you had a good, you had a pretty good reason for this, though. So I think it's 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 worthwhile mentioning, even if I do, I would say off the top that this movie is not worthwhile watching, but um, it is insane. No, it's 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 not, but it's it's certainly worth discussing. Just to be clear. Neither Jenna nor myself, at least, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of Jenna, and I believe I speak for Jenna when I say this. <laughs> it, it's, it's not, neither of us consider it to be part of Jerry Lewis's canon, but because it stars Jerry Lewis, it's fun to think of it as, like, a continuation of his established routines, just for the fuck of it. Just for shits and giggles. <laughs> because uh, it, it it only gets more bizarre i mean it's it's a bizarre movie in and of itself because it was um it came out of like the same generation of weinstein company animated movies yet another thing we have harvey weinstein to thank for that included <laughs> films like oh, um God. that included films like uh that 2005 movie hoodwinked which had little red riding hood but the usual suspects and um <laughs> And yeah, I'm sure that, I'm sure there were I'm sure there were others, but Hoodwinked was the only one I saw. I, I God, I loved that movie when I was a kid. I, I went to see that twice <laughs> in the cinema because really? the, the yep. I, I mean, in my defense, it was another kid who took uh, who took me to see it as uh, for their birthday party. But even so, I, I saw that movie twice in the cinema, wow. and I bought it on DVD in a Tesco. <laughs> 
which is um, <laughs> the only I place mean, to buy if, it. If you're if you if you're from the UK, Tesco is basically our Walmart. Yeah. It's just it's just a shitty mega store where you go buy cheap shit and cheap knockoff shit. And I think that just it's the epitome of it. It's the epitome of this. But anyway. It's it's bizarre because of that, and because and as a result, if you know if you know of Hoodwinked, you'll know of the animation style. That sort of very rubbery, plasticky look that the characters have. And Jenna noted, you noted that they all have lazy eye because they hadn't quite worked out how to do like facial features, so their eyes will be splayed. It's it's really str- it looks very low budget. I mean, like it's not the worst animated animated thing I've ever seen, but it is. I mean, it reminded me of reboot. I don't know if you had that show. It's like a I don't know. We we had we had reboot. We also had um, what was it? Ace Lightning, something like that. It was um, video game characters infiltrating the real world, and they all had this same plasticky look. Right, meets like Dexter's Laboratory in style, and there are some two D animated parts that look just like Dexter, like a really cheap knockoff of Dexter's Laboratory or like Powerpuff Girls kind of thing. But if if you're if you're like me and you grew up in the 1990s, early 2000s, this film will just open up a really horrifying, repressed part of your memory, where you you were you were you were sitting there in front of the TV, petrified by these uncanny facsimiles of human beings <laughs> staggering about the place, their mouths flapping around aimlessly, like horrible Lovecraftian fish monsters, and. So yeah, it's it's weird enough when you consider it for what it is, which is just a regrettable a regrettable learning curve in the history of animated kids films. But it only gets more bizarre when you consider that its structure is incredibly similar to many of Jerry's films, and not just like the ones that everyone knows, the early Tashlin um, Dean Martin collaborations, but also his solo features. It's this it's this unholy union of like the more natural, seamless narratives of his early work and the incredible and the incredibly abstract narratives of his late period. Like it, it sort of follows a narrative wherein like um wherein like the the the, the, the Jerry protagonist gets the girl and he and Well he, we should say the he, whole like, plot, really. I mean like basically it's this uh Jerry's uh, or Professor Kelp's uh like Grandchild, grandson. right? Yep, grandson. <laughs> His name is Harold. His name is so yeah. Ju- Julius Julius Kelp not only had kids, but he had grandkids. And yeah. God, if if you've seen the Naughty <laughs> Professor, just just linger on that thought for a minute and have fun sleeping tonight. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he like goes to science school or whatever, and and basically the science school looks like a colon for some strange reason. Oh yeah, everything has a sphincter in this. It's yeah, <laughs> pretty much any. There's no doors. It's just all like it's all sphincters, and it and it all and all of the interiors have this weird sort of cushiony pillow, uh, this cushiony paneling, and this is not like a result of the really shit animation. It was actually designed no, just... to look like that. Yeah, and it's a big part of the narrative where Jerry is like um. Where, Ju- where Julius Kelp, who is like one of the head teachers at this at this school for higher learning, he says, "Oh yeah, I, I, I install all these inflatable squishy mattresses and everything." So they they intended it to have this weird sphincter quality, which I mean is is perhaps prophetic when you can and perhaps <laughs> serendipitous when you consider the the co- the quality of the filmmaking. <laughs> oh yeah, big time, big time. But yeah, I mean the plot is—it is—it's essentially the Nutty Professor all over again. There's like a hot chick he wants to impress, and she actually seems to have a slight crush on him. But he decides to 
dig into his grandfather's computer where he finds um, a love program, which is incredibly seedy. And then he finds the formula for uh, the buddy love thing. So he gets his own version of buddy love. Yeah, he gets he gets he gets the two thousands Chad buddy love. So you have a guy with this. <laughs> you have a guy with the slicked up, spiked ha- spiked hair, the red biker leathers. He plays the drums. He says everything's radical and extreme, and it's just. And he's wearing Eddie Murphy's leather jumpsuit, quite frankly, yep. which, which was <laughs> honestly pretty solid. That was pretty amusing. But other than I mean, that, I mean to be to be to be fair, when when Buddy Love makes an appearance, and, and we have the we have a showdown between the young and the old versions of Buddy Love, it's pretty spectacular. But Buddy Love is also wearing this gr- this this very retro green suit with these weird like um super seventies lapels. It, it, it reminded me of something from the Jetsons with those incredibly <laughs> sharp collars, and I was just thinking, oh, hey, Buddy Love meets the Jetsons. This is what the kids love. This is what the kids want. Yeah, I mean, and from there, it's the same old damn thing. I mean, it's almost like they do like pod racing or something. I don't know. You know, it's like actually, yeah, they've, they've no, they've they've got a they've got a rad motorcycle racing. This is this is the thing. I can totally understand all of the decisions that they made within the context of like naughty's alarm. So you have like um, so you have. The the kid the kid who wants the sort of the stock naughty's hot girl who has the sort of the bob and the and the and the vest and the bell bottom jeans with the kind of the big ass and things like that this that is actually something where there's just a there's just a shot where he stares at her ass and it's yeah very disturbing <laughs> it's but, a Weinstein <laughs> joint it, it it certainly it certainly is that <laughs> um but but anyway so like you you have you have all of these things and you have like the extreme radical motorcycle race where the kid has to prove his masculinity and then there's and there's and there's all there's all there's all sorts of there's all sorts of like quintessentially naughty things, but again, and, and and as I said, I can understand um I can understand why they would up if they were going to make like a Nutty Professor sequel, why they would update it within this context. But again, there are still like remnants of the original Nutty Professor in there that people couldn't hope to on people of people of like the age group that was intended for couldn't hope to get. It feels right. like it feels like a film made by someone who watched The Nutty Professor as a kid and expects all the other kids years and years younger than they are now watching that film to get all of these bizarre references. Right, and and then they also, honestly, like, they take The Nutty Professor, um, you know, and I feel like, like, Kelp was, Julius Kelp, the original one, was really more, um, you know, he kept using the potion because he wanted to impress this girl, and then he was uh, essentially you know, enjoyed the spotlight. Whereas in this version of the Nutty Professor, it feels like he has a cocaine addiction. Like there is like so many, he like literally snorts the potion. <laughs> there's this, but yeah, there's some fucked up Tyler Durden shit in this because on, this, this is, this is where it leans more on like the kind of the Eddie Murphy Nutty Professor because um throughout, throughout the latter half of the film, after he's started to take the potion regularly, um, his alter ego, I think he's called Jack or something like that. He manifests in mirrors and things like that. Right. And he's and he starts to and he starts to like goad him to let him out and say, "Oh, come on, you can't do this without me." And it it's just it's so it's so weird to see all of these influences together in this in what is ostensibly a kids' film, referencing all of these films that they wouldn't have seen. Oh yeah, I mean, like there's a straight up Fight Club sequence where. Um, Jack is who is Harold is punching himself in the face to to like fight the this you know other personality inside of him I, I mean like it's wild and then in the end it ends with what I thought was Neon Genesis Evangelion because they get into like a freaking mech 
you know, Gundam. And then they start fighting this whatever, like the manifestation of his fear or something. Like, yeah, this there's, whole thing there's, is this, wild. there's this there's this MacGuffin um, that that that, that um, Kelp Senior Jerry Lewis has invented, um, which like manifests, which like manifests a part of your psyche. So um, so this through 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 this device, we get a manifestation of Harold's fears, being a nerd, so he's pelted with dodgeballs and all that kind of shit. But we we also get a scene where both Jack and Harold exist at the same time and get to interact with each other, and it it, tr- it tries to go for this kind of bittersweet thing at the end where he's like, "Oh, I I we I believed in you, man. We you did it. You don't need me anymore," <laughs> which is. A complete diversion from both the original and um, the Eddie Murphy Naughty Professor, and it's right. just. And this is and this is this is what I mean when I say that it it also is strongly reminiscent of, like Jerry's own solo projects because, as I, as we as we've said, it does follow a very typical kind of cliched narrative, but because of its length because it, it's like 70 minutes it's an incredibly ab- it, the, all the narrative beats are incredibly abrupt and it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a satisfying narrative in the same way that jerry's films which intentionally were unsatisfying and anticlimactic felt when watching them jerry lewis in this we were both surprised that the, the once jerry lewis comes on screen um his voice is pretty you know it's held up after years and decades of smoking and uh quite frankly um drug and alcohol yep. abuse um i was we were both surprised that was like the first thing that we both said was like oh shit like he sounds pretty good buddy love i must say does sound a little bit tired yeah he looks like they animated him looking tired and all of the budget I mean, seems to have gone into them animating jerry lewis's lips in this because it yep. is actually solidly <laughs> good animation and they really get down his mannerisms it does look like jerry lewis it does it does actually look like jerry lewis and he's like licking his lips and he has like nervous tics that old jerry has it was it was interesting (laughs) but like even even then even then despite like the despite the overabundance and pervasiveness of jerry he's also not really a central part of the film the film is about harold's emotional arc and Jerry really just exists on the peripheries, turning up every so often just to say, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm in this film. I'm 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 here." <laughs> at the end of at the end of the film, I believe he's actually the first person to get eaten by the the fear monster, and then the entire film just becomes <laughs> about like, like it, like it becomes like a, a Freudian thing where Harold is the ego, Jack is like the id, and then the girlfriend is the super ego, and then they're all inside this mech fighting the fear. So I can see where you're coming from when you say that this is basically Evangelion. <laughs> dude like and then and then the character i mean like it's basically a mishmash of just everything that was ever popular for children within the last like seven years of this film you know like like harold kind of has like a harry potter look <laughs> he has like a one round glasses like and and the other lens is rectangle just so that they don't get sued because otherwise like if someone showed me this, I'd be like, "Oh, you animated Harry Potter!" Like, <laughs> he look Harry Potter had that coming. <laughs> His tie in the poster is is red and gold stripes, so it's like you know, come on. And he wears and he wears a sweater vest, which I believe Harry does as well in those movies. Yeah, you know, and and he's not even British, so he doesn't have any excuse for wearing a sweater vest. So. <laughs> <laughs> no no british person has ever worn a sweater vest outside of like the 1970s this is an urban myth i want to quell very quickly no uh-huh, i saw it in harry potter Har- harry harry potter doesn't actually exist it's uh lies it's not what, it's not a documentary of britain how dare you 
Um, the only the other notable thing about Nutty Professor is that there is a uh, a dean of this school that looks like the science second life school and this guy oh yeah this goes back to the yellow face thing yeah yellow yellow face jerry lives on this is yet another remnant from the classical era of jerry yeah it's dean von Wu. i didn't know that they could animate yellow face but here we are it's it's the weirdest thing it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to animate yellow face i mean (laughs) yellow face was itself like a grotesque caricature and if we consider that the history of cinema is built on all those appropriate like blackface cartoons oh sure we talked about in bamboozled i mean it was just you know it was a matter of time we just needed the technology yellow face all all of film has been leading up to the rendering of like new animated yellow face i guess i'll put an asterisk i didn't realize we could animate it past the year 1940 but you know here we oh no no no. uh yeah no it's very strange and i also quite frankly had i can't help but think even though he's a dean of a school to hear jerry say the word dean the way that he says dean martin all the time like was also (laughs) in the back of my head so uh that was i don't know you're right there are there's a lot of weird references and aspects to this that that just calls back all this other jerry stuff and like but it's so weird. I just, I don't know. I don't know that I would have liked this as a kid. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't have liked this as a kid. I think um, if uh, some, someone 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 su- suggested to me that I was wasting my time talking about this film for three-year-olds, and I don't know, if I'd been shown this film as a three-year-old, I, that would have scared the shit out of me. Oh, yeah. It's not, not, beca- not because the moments which were intended to be scary were scary just because the entire thing was just so bizarre in its aesthetic that it would have it would have made me it would have made me nervous to watch it it would have given me it would have it would have given me fear and this and well this 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 in turn goes back to like the film's latent themes of drug addiction and things like that i i that that film that film is a drug trip and i'm i'm not sure if children should be exposed to it i mean it gives me fear if, now <laughs> <laughs> if for if for any reason if for any reason you somehow find this film it, i don't know if it's on like amazon prime or netflix and like the the recesses of those streaming platforms actually actually it will given some of the shit that's on disney plus it might end up on there as well oh, at God. some point but like if for any reason you dig through a junk shop or you find this on like kiss cartoon or something like that I know that you're not going to, but just don't show this to your kids. I, I I know I know that you never would, but also I feel like it's worth saying don't do it. Don't don't do it. Do get high no. and show it to all of your friends. Oh god, yeah. Yeah, have have like have like have like a Jerry have like a Jerry Lewis party which where you show them like uh, cracking up and then you just smash into this, which is it's presumably Jerry in the afterlife. He went to he he didn't go to he didn't go to hell. He went to purgatory. And this is this is this film is an accurate representation of purgatory. <laughs> I have to say though, the only people that are showing up to the Jerry Lewis party is just me and you, Ben. <laughs> yeah, it's just and gonna we, and be. We, us. And we watched it. And we watched it. <laughs> yep, and we did it. And I wasn't even high, so there you go. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I I know, but you didn't need to be. That that was the that was the entire point. <laughs> I guess I guess I guess the real high was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there we are. We we've done it. We've we've now convinced you by by watching a pretty solid Jerry Lewis film in a really ridiculously um, genuinely Awful nutty one. film. Um, do you have anything? Any last words here on on for for the the people to? 
you know, go out and check Jerry Lewis. I feel like you made a great case for this. I, I love oh, hearing well, about um, people that I love hearing someone take a, a very malign subject and, and speaking eloquently on, on it because there is always something to say. There's always like, uh, and I think you made some pretty interesting and legitimate points here. I mean, like when, when I've spent a lot of time with Jerry Lewis stuff, I feel like I, I end up focusing a lot on who he was as a person because to me, what's so fascinating about him is just his psyche. I mean, like the like the decisions that he made, I find just like amazing. And then you watch these movies and you can also draw these parallels to things that were happening in his life. And as you're saying that he, he really draws upon um, himself and, and he puts himself on screen. You know, there's just, there's nothing, there's like nothing in between him, his body and the screen. So, I mean, like, it is it is wild and, and interesting. It both, and he's it both, is, such... it both is and isn't. Jerry is simultaneously everything and nothing. He is, <laughs> he's, he, uh, he's, he's structured around an absence. His entire being is structured around this kind of absence. And the absence is, the absence is reality. His films are an outright rejection of reality and like, and everything that that entails. See, now I want to get high. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as well, I mean, if if you're up for watching the Nutty Professor again, uh, <laughs> that's 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 the that's the cheapest high I can think of. That that and banging your head against a wall for a long enough period of time. <laughs> well, thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for coming on. And and where can the the good folks find you? They can find me um, on uh, Mobile Notebook. Um, you can follow me on Twitter and Letterbox if you care to. Um, yeah, you're on Letterbox at yeah. Ben Nash, just your name, right? B-N-N-A-S-H. Yes, just ben, just ben Nash. And um, I hope to discuss things with you in the future. And I feel like the best way to finish this would be to say, in the immortal words of Mr. Lewis, I'm very glad that you choose me. <laughs> well, thank you, Jerry. This podcast has been a presentation of backdashrow.com, co-founders Veronica Delchenko and Jenna Ipkar, contributors Dan Gorman and Carlo Vestefeld.